Revelation 10, verse 1. John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded... I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Just as he announced to his seven, to his servants and the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, Go, take the scroll that is opened in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take, eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. We, 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 over the last several years, we don't have cable and we don't have satellite. And so what we do is we get into these series. And if we get a good one, we'll binge watch it. We've been known to do that. We've been known to, you know, watch a whole season in a week or something, you know, late at night and things like that. After, you know, the business of the day is taken care of, and we come sit down. and So we finished one, and then we started another one. And uh, this particular series is, it's, I think it's a FX series. It may be old. I don't know. Sometimes, you know, actually, I think this is Hulu. I don't think it's Netflix. But the title of the series is called The Sun. Uh, Pierce Bronson is in it, and it's about South Texas oil days, early 1900s, and Pierce Bronson's this ruthless oil baron. I mean, he's horrible, terrible, terrible guy. Anyway, so, so last night, you know, things had settled down, and we were in, we were watching one of the episodes in it, and one of Pierce Bronson's sons, this guy's named McCullough, he's like a son of Texas, you know, he's colonel, he's just... Texas through and through and raised by Comanches. I mean, the whole backstory of this thing is incredible. But he has two sons. One of his sons had died, but he has two sons. The older son, is he's grooming to be involved in politics. And one day he's going to be governor of Texas. And this, but his son has a problem. This son, and I have to be careful because there are sensitive ears here this morning. So read between the lines. This son would fit in very well in today's what we might refer to as the Rainbow Coalition. You following me? Okay. 
So, this son is captured. He's tricked, and photos are taken of him in a compromising position. You with me? And so they're blackmailing him. And it comes out publicly. He's not going to turn his back on his father. So he's ruined publicly. It's in the newspapers. It's everywhere. What's interesting is in this scene, the younger brother and his wife are in the room. And they're just, they're they're distraught over this. They're like, oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe this. And the son's saying, did you know? And his wife is saying, well, yeah, everybody knew. And, uh, you know, they're going back and forth. And the son just stops and he says, well, I don't know what to think of this. This is sin. And then his wife says, well, I don't know what to think either. I go to church. Remember when she said this? She said, I go to church. I read my Bible. But I just can't help the way I feel. Now the implication was, yeah, I know some, there's some sense about this that just doesn't feel right, and it seems like it's wrong. But what she was saying was, yeah, I know through church and Bible, but yet, but yet it's the way I feel. And, it, and she said, I still love him, and, and all that, you know, and that's family and so forth. But the point is, when she says, but I can't help the way I feel, it struck me. Because I'd been thinking through this passage. And I've been thinking through what it means that John eats the word and it's sweet and then bitter. And, and just thinking through it. And then it struck me. This is the way we all, and I'm going to speak in general terms because I know not all of us do this. But this is the way, I, could, I guess I could say this, this is the way a lot of Christians treat the word of God. I go to church, I may hear it preached, Some churches you may not hear it preached. But I go to church, and let's just say I go to a church where it is preached. And so I hear it preached. I read it. I do my devotions. I do. I read the Bible. I do my devotions. But it's never really had any impact on the way you think and the way you feel. You see, that's what I think she was getting at. I go to church, I read the Bible, I know that something's not right about this, but what is going to trump all of that is the way I feel about it. Because what has not happened for her, she never ingested, digested, ate, fed upon the Word of God. And I think there's a lot of Christians that are that way. Man, look, don't you take this Bible from us. Don't you dare take it. In fact, man, you remember when they took Bible out of the public schools and, you know, you can't public arenas and places and, and, and government and so forth take it out. Man, we line up, we fight. You remember the Ten Commandments? Remember the fight? Isn't it interesting? The Ten Commandments, just all of a sudden, that just kind of went away, did it? Last several years, it flares up every now and then. But you remember the big fight? Man, don't you take those Ten Commandments down. It's going to stay on the courthouse. Don't you take that monument of the Ten Commandments down. And there were people that would line up and they would fight and they would get be on the news and they would be so fighting mad. And I just wanted a reporter to turn and say, quote the Ten Commandments to me. Do you even have any idea what the Ten Commandments say? 
Can you at least name one commandment? Oh, well, let's see. Something about stealing. Don't you dare touch the Word of God, right? Don't you dare take it. Don't you dare mess with it. We stand in awe at the Word of God. But are you reading it? And if you are reading it, are you digesting it? That's the question for me. Am I feeding on it? You see, what we're going to see in 10, and we always, again, with the book of Revelation, when we get to these, uh, we get to these sections where there is a little break here. The focus of 10 is a book. We'll talk about this book in just a second, but that's the focus of what he sees in 10. It is a book. A book is front and center. Where this book came from, what he does with this book, it's front and center. And again, chapter 10, some call call it an interlude, a break. We've seen this before because we rolled through chapter 6, the seals, right? Seals are being broken, and then we get to chapter 7, and there's this break. And then we roll through the trumpets, at least the six trumpets of 8 and 9, and and we get to that sixth trumpet, we're anticipating the seventh trumpet, and lo and behold, wait a minute, hold, we pause a little bit, there's another break. But listen, I don't want you to think of these breaks this way. I don't want you to think of these breaks because chapter 10 and and the seventh trumpet is going to happen. We'll see the seventh angel, the seventh trumpet, chapter 11, verse 15. But then we're going to go to some other things before we actually get to the bold judgments. But I don't want you to think of these breaks this way because it'd be tempting to think of the break like this. Oh, it's intermission time. You remember when the days when the movies had intermissions? Or plays. You ever been to plays? You know, you watch this live performance and then act one, and what happens? The curtain closes. You get ready, you hear them moving around behind the stage, setting the furniture, and then all of a sudden the curtain opens. Act two. And then you get to intermission, curtain closes. 15-minute intermission, people get up, go around, they buy popcorn, get drinks, talk, and go to the bathroom, and that kind of thing, right? Remember, movies used to have intermissions. Remember, some of the long movies would have intermissions. I don't want you to think of like chapter 7, that great scene of the sealing of God's people. We have nothing to worry about. We've been sealed by Him. We are protected. And I don't want you to think of chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11 and then 12 and 13 and so forth. I don't want you to think of this like intermission. Oh, we can take a break. Man, we want to see the seals. We want to see this judgment stuff. We want to see what's going to happen. We want to see what army this is, and we want to see what plague this is, and we want to see what hurricane's coming next. And then we get to something like 10, and it's like intermission. Let's go get popcorn. It's not the way we need to look at this. And and if you're not careful, you, you sort of see the book unfolding this way. God's not just looking to kill some time here. And nor do we need to think of chapter 10, the same way with chapter 7, as sort of a series of events that are happening and unfolding in a time sequence. Now, I know some approach Revelation that way. Well, you got the seals, then you had to have seven, and you couldn't have the trumpets until you got seven, then you got the six trumpets. Well, you can't have the seventh trumpet until you get what happens in 10, and some push it all the way to the future. So in other words, this is something that's happening during the tribulation. I think that's the wrong way to look at this, and we miss something here when we look at it that way. This is not sort of, okay, the seals have happened, seven's happened, the trumpets have happened, now we got a break, and let's see what's going to happen next. 
Revelation just doesn't unfold that way. John's in heaven, then he's on the earth. Then he's back in heaven, then he's back on earth. He's seeing this, and then he's seeing that. And so what I think we're seeing with chapter 7 and with chapter 10, it's, it's different scenes at the same time. In other words, he's seeing one thing here in the seals and the trumpets. And then he sees the sealing of God's people. Then he sees the trumpets. And then at the same time, he's seeing this vision from a different perspective. So it's not like it's just sort of unfolding like we're watching a movie. And it's following along a plot and so forth. I I think we miss a lot of of Revelation when we look at it that way. And the other thing I think we miss is what does this have to say for us? Because if this is all future, then why even bother with chapter 10, right? What did this have to say to those people in the first century? What does it have to say to, to us? Well, front and center chapter 10 is a book. It's a book. And I don't think there's big mystery as to what the book is. At least what the book represents. I don't think there's a big mystery here in that. God's word is powerful. God's word is powerful. And one of the things that we've seen, one of the themes that, especially when we started looking at the seals being loosed, is an understanding that God is still speaking. And in those seals and in those trumpets, he's speaking in judgment. And all of this chaos, and all of the chaos in the world now, God is speaking. He's speaking clearly, he's speaking coherently, and we better listen, right? We better hear what he has to say. In Revelation 10, he's speaking. He's speaking during all this chaos. He's speaking to us. Are we going to listen? Are we going to hear it? He's speaking in judgment, but he's also speaking, and this is why I think in chapter 7 and chapter 10, he's also speaking hope. So in the midst of the chaos, there's hope. That hope is found in chapter 7 in Christ and the sealing of his servants. The hope in chapter 10 is found in the fact that God has revealed himself to us. He's revealed His Word to us. And He's speaking in hope. And His Word, His Word is powerful. So, chapter 10, there's this focus on the book. It's on the book here. And again, we're sort of in this break. Well, when we look at the book, there's really two things. Okay, what is the book? And then, what do we do with this book? Now, we could go through, this is one way we could go through chapter 10. And I was tempted to sort of go through 10 this way, because it's very interesting Chapter 10 seems to be loud. There are moments where there's silence, right? There are moments when it appears to be quiet. Then there are moments when it is loud and noisy and stuff going on. Chapter 10 seems to be one of those noisy moments because there's voices. There are people speaking. And we could trace it through. The voice of the angel in chapter 3. Then there's seven thunders that are speaking and thundering. And then there's a voice from heaven. And then the angel in chapter 3, this mighty angel, speaks again. The voice from heaven speaks again. Then there's John's voice. Give me the book. And then there's the voice from heaven again. And then at the end, they said which appears to be the voice from heaven and the mighty angel. So you couldn't trace it through, just follow the dialogue here and see who's speaking. 
See the voices. But we're not going to do that. We're going to take it in two parts. One, and just looking at the book and trying to understand what is this book. And that begins in verse 1. This is what John writes. He says, Then I saw... Then I saw another mighty angel. Where did we see a mighty angel before? Remember chapter 5? You remember the scene in chapter 4 of the throne, and then in chapter 5 there was a strong angel, and you remember what he was proclaiming? Remember what he was saying in chapter 5? Who is worthy? Who can take the scroll? In other words, who can take the book? And who can open it? Who can loose its seals? John says, now I I see, or I saw, another mighty angel. Another mighty angel. Now, the interesting thing about the angel, that angel in chapter 5, where's that scene? That scene's in heaven, right? Remember I told you, we're in heaven, we're on earth, back and forth. Well, guess what? We're about to go to earth here, because notice what it says. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. So John sees this mighty, this powerful angel, descending and coming down from the heaven, and, as we'll see in just a minute, he's going to stand on the earth. He's going to stand on the earth in an interesting way. The description of the way he stands on the earth is pretty interesting. So John sees this mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud. Now notice his appearance. The question, some have said, well, this has to be Christ. This mighty angel has to be Christ. It might very well be. Because when we see his appearance, it fits. It fits God. It fits Christ. Okay? But others have said, well, it's not that, that he's, he's, the angel is Christ. But it's very clear. If he's not Christ, it's very clear. The glory of God is all over this angel. Because notice his appearance. He comes down from heaven. He's wrapped in a cloud. He's wrapped in a cloud. Remember cloud in the Old Testament? Remember the most prominent place, cloud appears in the Old Testament, the Exodus, God the pillar, cloud leading, so forth. Cloud there in the Old Testament. Acts chapter 1 verse 9, Jesus is taken up in what? Cloud. And then all of a sudden, the very two verses later, verse 11, the angels say, why are you standing here with your mouths wide open? He's going to come back in the same way. Is he going to come back in the clouds? Is he going to come back with clouds? Okay, so Exodus, the Exodus event in the Old Testament, clouds associated with God, Christ, His ascension associated with clouds. Now we could take the time; I could take you through and trace it, and you could see other places in the Old Testament where clouds are associated with God. So very clearly, He's seen the angel come down in a cloud. This is associated with God. This is associated with God. You remember the fifth and the sixth trumpet, those demonic armies? Those are, those are demonic armies. Those weren't associated, weren't associated with God in the sense of His character and nature. God's behind it and in control of it as He is of all this. But the very clearly, this angel's associated with God. The glory of God's all over him. And then notice this, with a rainbow over his head. We've seen the rainbow before. You remember chapter 4? The throne... In fact, if you trace this and look, the rainbow, Ezekiel, when Ezekiel has his vision, and there in chapter 1, and Ezekiel is shown the heavens, and he sees God, there's a rainbow. And then you go all the way back to Genesis 9, rainbow. You remember what the rainbow? God's faithfulness, His promise, His grace, His mercy, I will not destroy the world again by flood. It's a reminder of His covenant. 
So here, cloud, rainbow, associated with God, God's covenant. And notice, it doesn't stop there because when John sees this angel, there's this rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun. His face is like the sun. You remember all the way back in chapter 1, Revelation? In chapter 1, there's this description of Christ, and at the end of that description it says, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like what? Sun. Shining! John sees this mighty angel. His face is like the sun. And then, notice what else in his appearance. And his legs like pillows of fire. Earlier in chapter 1 and verse 15, it talks about the legs, the feet of Christ, like these pillars of fire, these burnished, burnished bronze. I mean, this is a magnificent thing that John's seeing. This angel's coming down and he sees his appearance as this. And then verse 2, he says, he had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He's got a book in his hand. Now, let me just go say this. We, again, we could spend hours trying to trace, is this book, this, this, that. I think it's the same book in chapter 5. Others have argued, no, this is a little scroll. The description of this is little. But I think it's the same. In chapter 5, it's sealed. What happens? Christ loose the seals. Now here he comes. He has this book, and it's in his hand. And notice what it says. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea. It's open in his hand. This book is now open. But I think it represents something even more than that. Because even in that, remember, that scroll, even if this is a different scroll, some little scroll, you had the big scroll of Revelation 6, now you've got a little scroll. It's still very clear that what this is representing is the Word of God. It is God's revelation. This is coming down from heaven. The angel is bringing it. And he comes and there's his appearance. And this scroll is opened. And he's got one foot on the land. He's got one foot on the sea. His right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. All right, look, don't go crazy and say, oh, well, right and left foot. That must signify this and that must mean this government and that must mean that. That's not what, the, that's not what this is symbolizing. What this is symbolizing is that he has mastery over all of it. Is there anything else besides land and sea? There's <laughs> nothing else, right? So if he sees one foot on land, one foot on sea, it's his mastery over all of it. In other words, it's all God's. Every square inch of it is his. And here comes this angel from heaven. He's got a book in his hand. His, his, his stance is such that his right foot's on the sea, his left foot on the land. And then notice verse 3. And he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. This was not some weak, high-pitched, squealy, mealy-mouthed voice. This was the voice of a lion roaring. You go to Amos 3. And Amos says, as he's writing in his prophecy, and he's talking about the things that have happened. And what he says in Amos 3 is that you need to understand something. You people of God need to understand something. These things that have happened to you, God's judgments that have come upon you, he says, a lion has roared. He's roared. 
I think we would be wise to look and see in the times in which we're living right now, a lion is roaring. He's speaking. And we need to hear it. So, this angel, his voice is like this lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. I think seven, I think by now you understand seven, this number of perfection. I think that's the number there. But now, who who are these seven thunders? I have absolutely no idea. And if you read somebody that says they have the key to the understanding of the seven thunders, and they have the message which they said and which John heard, then run because they're lying. Nobody knows who they are. And notice what happens here. These seven thunders, as he roars when he called out, seven thunders sounded. They said something. Because notice, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. Why would John write? It's what he's told to do in the very first part of this book. Write. Write these things down. So when they say something, these seven thunders, they're communicating something. John must have understood it. He must have heard it. He must have thought, wow, this is great. This is important. And so he starts to write it down, just like he's been writing everything else down, probably. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. Actually, back up before that, and when the seventh thunder sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven. Here's another voice, this voice from heaven, probably the voice of God. I heard a, I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Nobody knows what it was. Nobody has a clue. I don't have a clue what, it, what was said. But I don't think that's the focus here. It's not to try to figure out the mystery of what's been said here. I think what's being communicated, this whole scene and what John's seeing, the angel coming from heaven, has got a book, right? The book representing the revelation of God, God's word. Here he comes out of heaven. His word comes from heaven. The Bible is given to us by God. It's God's gift to us. It's not man's ideas about God. It doesn't originate on earth and try to explain God. It is God revealing himself to us and handing down to us his revelation. It is the very word of God. In Europe, in the old cathedrals, I've never seen them, I'd love to go see them one day, but they say the architect of the old cathedrals in Europe, they had these big, huge skylights. And they were put there because in their architectural design, they understood light came from above. In other words, it was symbolic of God giving us light. God gave us revelation. We would know nothing about Him. We would know nothing about the gospel unless God had revealed it to us. That's what's behind this, I think. He's seeing this, these seven thunders. John's told, seal it up. You remember Daniel, the end of Daniel? Remember going through Daniel? We get to the end of Daniel, remember what Daniel was told? Seal it up. But Daniel was told, seal it up, because it's for the end. Daniel figures in, I think, a lot in the book of Revelation. So, So does Ezekiel. So much of the Old Testament figures into what we see in Revelation. But here, the indication is, this is going to be sealed up, and nobody's ever going to know it. Nobody's ever going to know what these seven thunders said. Nobody's ever going to know. Maybe we get to heaven, we sit down with John and say, Hey, John, listen, when you saw that angel, and his voice was roaring like a lion, and those seven thunders, what did they say? 
I don't know. We get to heaven. It's, it's not going to matter. I doubt we're going to look John up and the burning question on our hearts is what did the seven thunders say? Because we're going to see our Savior. And we're going to be consumed with Him. John just simply says when we see Him, we'll know. We'll know. But it is interesting here. So, John's told to seal it up. Don't write it down. There is something mysterious about the Word of God, right? There is something mysterious about it. I have spent a large majority of my life studying and trying to understand this ancient manuscript. And trying to understand it so that in turn... I would be able to teach and help other people understand it so that they could apply it to their lives. And yet, the more and the deeper we go, the more we realize and understand what we don't know. Some things, God has just held back. We've been talking about, we've been going back and looking at creation, the creation of human beings on Wednesday nights, trying to understand at least the foundation of some of the stuff that's been going on. And we know man's created in the image of God. We know that. We see that. There's only one race. It's the human race. We see that. But then how did all that happen? I mean, we're not told all the details. We're not told all the biological material, right? We're not told all the scientific information about that or creation. There are some things that just are mysterious. It's just some things we believe and accept by faith. And this is one thing. When you begin to read the Bible and you begin to try to understand it and try to study it and try to wrestle and think great thoughts about God and about your life, you're, you need to be willing to live with some tension there because there's going to be plenty Plenty of things. Plenty of things. That you're not going to fully understand. And there are going to be plenty of things that are going to seem so mysterious. And that's why it's a life of faith. But I will tell you this. What we need is clear. Deuteronomy chapter 29, after that chapter 28, and the warning of the curses and so forth, you get to the end of Deuteronomy chapter 29, and Moses says the secret things belong to God. The secret things belong to God. And there are some things that need to stay there. But what has been revealed, what is clear, belongs to us. It belongs to us. And we have a responsibility with it. God does. He holds some things back. This book is opened? Yes. Revelation to us? Yes. But not all of it. But not all of it. We need to be willing to live with tension and live by faith. But notice what else happens here. The angel, he does something interesting. He sees this angel. He stands on the sea, one foot on the sea. And then, and then it says, he raises his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Now, obviously, this is God, right? I mean, this is God. He's raising his right hand. He's swearing by God who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and there would be no more delay. No more delay. This, this is going to play out. This is this, no more delay here. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, which is coming, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. 
So this announcing, it's, it's, it's euangelion, it's, it's the gospel, it's to announce this. It's the same word that's used for the preaching of the gospel. But this is what he, I think John is seeing and what's being conveyed in this. God has revealed His word. He gave us His word. And you go and you look at a place like 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The, 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 the word of God, the Bible is literally God-breathed. It's His word, right? It's His Word to us. And then you go to a place like 2 Peter, and you look at chapter 1 and verse 20, and Peter says, there's no prophecy. Nothing has come by the hands of man. Nothing, no prophecy came by the will of man. But what does Peter tell us? Holy men of old were moved by the Holy Spirit. And when they were moved by the Holy Spirit, what did they do? They wrote. So in other words, the Word of God comes to us from God. It comes down to us. He used men. He used prophets. He used apostles. He preserved His Word for us. And we have it right here. Rest assured, this is the very words of God given to us. You see, I think that's what that book is representing in the hand of this mighty angel as he comes down. Now, is it the same book? I think it is. But whether it is or whether it's not, what is the picture here? God has revealed something to us. That's the what it is. But it doesn't stop there. Because now comes what do we do with it? I think this is a very interesting way that this plays out with John. It's reminiscent of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 2. Into the first part of chapter 3. Ezekiel's told to take a book and eat it. Jeremiah. Jeremiah 15. Verse 15. Jeremiah's told and talks about the same thing. Eating the very words of God. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah say when they did it was sweet. It was their association with that word. The word of God being internalized. But John adds something here. I think there's a connection there. John adds something here. Verse 8, what do we do with this? Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him, give me the little scroll. Don't overlook this. John's told to go get the scroll. John could have sat back and said, well, I don't know. Gee, man, the Word of God, it's important. I, I, I stand in awe of the Word of God. Man, it is God's Word. But to take it, me, take it? Me, read it? And you see what John did? He's told to go and take it. And what does John do? He goes marches right up to the angel and says, Give me the book. Give me the book. God's given us a book. He's given it to us. And our attitude should be, give me the book. Give me the book. You should demand of me on the Lord's day, give me the book. You don't need my stories. My wild imaginations, tall fancy tales. You need the book. John goes, give me the book. 
He takes the book. And notice what he does with it. He took the book. He said to me, go get the book. So I go and I take it. And so I went to the angel and told him, give me the little scroll. Give me the book. And he said to me, take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And so what did John do? So he takes the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. It's bitter. Now, there some interpreters say, well, the bitterness of this is the judgments. It's what he's saying. But that's to miss the point here. This is not external. The whole purpose of eating the book is to personally apply the book. And when he did, when he ate it, it was sweet. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, man, I take your word into my mouth and it's sweet as honey. There's a sweetness to it. There's a sweetness to the gospel. There's a sweetness to the word of God. But then you begin to ingest it. You begin to digest it. You begin to work it out and let it work its way out in your life. And there's a bitterness to it. I know what that bitterness is. Because when I, when I first became a Christian, there, there, was, there was something just deep within me. There was a drive within me. There was a hunger for the Word of God. And that came from God. That didn't come from me. Because before that, I could care less about it. I didn't want anything to do with it. And I remember digging into it. I remember just devouring it. And there were times when, man, it was so sweet, it was so beautiful, and struggling with this sin, and struggling with things like assurance of salvation, and, and, and digging into it, and seeing Christ, and seeing the gospel. But then the Word of God began to do something that it, the Word of God does, and it's something that begins on the inside. It's something that begins, that's internalized, for I think every believer, when you start to look at the Word of God, what it began to do is it started to clean me up. And it exposed sin after sin. And it was bitter. But as it began to clean me up, it was so sweet. The sweetness of the Word of God. You see that? That's what's happening with John. This bitterness, I don't think, is, is John looking and going, oh my gosh, more judgment's coming. That's external stuff. This is internal. John is personally applying, eating, applying, digesting the Word of God. And whenever you as a believer, whenever you sit down and say, okay... I'm going to stop playing around with the Word of God. I'm going to stop treating it just like some little quick devotion on the mornings. And I'm going to stop just being it all and like to talk about it. I'm going to actually start to sit down, dig into it, and pray that God begins to do a work deep inside of me and show me His Word. Then be ready because it's going to be sweet and it's going to be bitter because it's going to expose things in your heart. Things that you may not have even been aware of. That's the way His Word works. That's why Paul says, you know, when it, comes down to the, when it comes down to it, we get closer to the end, people don't want to hear this Word preached. What do they want to do? They want to heap up for themselves teachers who tickle their ears. Why? Because there's bitterness in this. 
There's bitterness in it sometimes. But, but the bitterness is going to lead to the sweetness. The sweetness of the gospel. See, I, I think that's what's going on. And then that, that's the personal, applying the word personally there. But then there's a the second part to this. And what do we do with it? And that's, a verse, that's verse 11. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. In other words, it's time now. You personally apply it. Now it's time to proclaim it. Now it's time to go live it and proclaim it. Now this isn't just for missionaries. This isn't just for preachers. This is for all of us. And if there's ever been a time when it needs to be lived and proclaimed, it is now. But I'm going to tell you this. You cannot possibly stand against the onslaught of what we've been faced with over the last several months through coronavirus, through the riots, through who knows what else is coming, now, you know, this and that, and and then resurgence. You cannot possibly stand in that gap if you are not in the Word of God. And not just reading it casually. You can't stand in that gap unless you are devouring it, digesting it, and letting it, letting God do His work through His Word. If there was ever a time for that, it's now. And then, once you do that, then live it. So many make the mistake of proclaiming and trying to live without first personally digesting. And you know where that gets you? That usually gets you trapped in some hypocrisy. That usually gets you trapped in some where you're saying one thing and doing another. Digest it. Let it do its work. Let it change you, transform you from the inside out. Whatever sin is there, whatever needs to be cleaned up, whatever needs to be cleansed, whatever needs to be pushed out of your life as a believer, whatever it is, it's the Word of God that does that. It's powerful. But I'm going to tell you this. It takes guts to do it. I'm using human language here, of course. It's the grace of God, but I I think you'll understand what I mean by this. It takes guts to do it. And if you're not ready to change, if you're not ready to clean your act up, then just continue the way you're going. And what's going to happen is you're going to be marginalized and you're going to be blown over. And you're going to be pushed to the side as this culture races breakneck speed away from God. In fact, you may not even get pushed to the side. You may get swept up in it and wake up and think, what in the world happened? And you may be sitting in a room going, I go to church. I read my Bible. I just can't help the way I feel. If you can't see the difference, then you need to digest the Word of God. 
And let the Word of God change your thinking and feeling. It's time. It's time. We've played around way too long. And then what do we do? We live it. We proclaim it. But you first have to apply it to yourself. You first have to apply it to yourself. Let it clean you up. I get asked sometimes about... Sometimes I'll preach a sermon and sometimes you know, somebody will say, Oh man, that must have been a hard one to preach. And usually it's because it's dealing with some topic. You know, ah, you probably don't want to touch that topic. That's why I preach through books. That's why I go verse by verse through books of the Bible. It's because that way we have to cover everything. And you can't accuse me of picking on you. And I can't avoid things that personally I might not want to deal with. You see? I have to deal with it. In fact, every single sermon that I preach, it first is bitter to me. Because it's dealing with my own heart. It's dealing with my own heart. Then it's sweet. And the sweetness comes in God's assurance and grace in Christ. But the sweetness comes because I know for you it's safe. And I know what God can do with His Word in your life. Because He did it to me. The hard sermons, the hard ones, has nothing to do with topics. The hard sermons are when I come across a passage and I look at my own heart and I say, Oh God, you got to deal with my heart before I can ever possibly proclaim this to others. That's a bitterness. And it's a bitterness in your life personally too when you start to study and look at and apply and try to live the Word of God. It's time. Where does it start? It starts by turning to Christ. Turn to Him. Turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Him. He died on a cross, was buried, raised the third day, and He stands and says, Come. It's been open to you. Take it. Eat it. Take it and eat it. Let's pray together.